passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. See, God promises us many things in Scripture. He promises to be with us in many different ways. And and if we're honest, many of us wrestle with the idea of believing God. It's not that we don't believe God, because we certainly do believe God. When he promises us, when he asks us to trust him, but also at the same time, we can struggle with doubt. Many of you have probably found yourself in a place where you are praying to God. You're asking for God to heal a friend or a family member of some sickness and illness. And while you are praying, the back of your mind is a little voice saying, what's the point? This isn't going to work anyway. Many of you have found yourself at a position where you have the choice to make between doing right and doing wrong. And you know what God's word says. You know that you are called to do what is right. And yet in the moment, you have zero desire to do so. Do you believe God? Many others of us can relate to this when it comes to reading our Bible. We enjoy reading the Bible. We feel refreshed when we meet God in his word. And yet it's so difficult to get ourselves to read God's word. To bring ourselves to encounter God in his word. Do you believe God? In each of these different areas and and in several different others, I, I am so guilty. It's happened so often in my own life where I am found at the crossroads between belief and doubt. Between the crossroads of obedience and complacency. Between faith and unbelief. And to be honest with you, as as I struggle through these things, I can sometimes feel guilty. Like there's something wrong with me. If you've ever found yourself in a similar situation, where you desire to believe God, you want to trust God, and you do, but also at the same time you wrestle with doubts, then Genesis 15 provides you with a great deal of hope. See, Genesis 15 is all about believing God. It's all about what it means to believe God. And in Genesis 15, we actually find one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this verse in Genesis 15, verse 6, is crucial for a proper understanding of our salvation. It is quoted multiple times by multiple different authors in the New Testament. It is the foundation of Israel's relationship with God in the Old Testament. It is the foundation of the church's relationship with God today. And it is all about believing God. Maybe you're someone who struggles with believing God. Where you want to believe God. You try to believe the Bible, but you feel guilty because the objections that our culture speaks ring loud and clear in your head. Objections about why God, if he's good, allows so much pain and suffering. Objections about why the wicked prosper while the righteous can barely get by. And on and on and on, the objections continue. And you feel guilty about this crossroads, this intersection of faith and doubt. 
And this morning's passage speaks to that. You see, in Genesis 15, we continue our journey through the book of Genesis with Abram, looking at Abram's life and how God is at work in his life. And what we see is one crucial truth, and that is this. Believing God trusts God. Believing God trusts God. That's what it means to believe God. We trust him. We trust him when he promises us something, that he will keep that promise. We trust God to do what is right. We trust that God will not abandon us. Believing God trusts God. Now to explore this, as we look at belief, and what it means to believe God, what it means to trust God, we're really going to look at two questions that this passage asks and raises for us. The first question is this, what is belief? What does it mean to believe? For that matter, what should we believe in? What is belief is our first question. The second question is this, what is righteousness? See, righteousness is a very commonly used church word. You've probably heard it before, but a lot of times we don't understand truly what righteousness is. And righteousness is at the center of this passage. What is belief and what is righteousness? As we jump into God's word, would you join me in prayer? God, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us and it teaches us more about who you are. It teaches us more about how to follow you. I ask that as we approach it even now, you would come and speak to us. In in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned Genesis 15 is all about believing God. And to understand what it is saying about believing God, we first have to put it into its context. Genesis 15, as you might guess, takes place right after the events of Genesis 14. Let's just take a a few moments to, to remember what happened last week as we were looking in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, Abram courageously goes on this wonderful rescue mission. He rescues his nephew Lot, and he rescues others from a sure end in future slavery. It's probably one of the most daring rescue missions of all time. He he stands toe-to-toe with the empires of the day, and he is victorious. Abram is without a doubt on a mountaintop. During this experience, he has rescued a multitude of people, a multitude of property, a multitude of possessions. He's offered all of these things as his right for freeing them. And yet he turns them down because he knows that God will provide for him in a far better way. And then we get to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, we see that the repercussions of what Abram has just done begin to sink in. He has defeated the kings of great nations what if they come back for vengeance? He has declined the opportunity to acquire a great deal of land. But what if that was the way God was planning to fulfill his promise to him? Abram had become richer than his wildest dreams. Is he sure that this was God? Or was this the world that was speaking to him? It's in the darkest night of his soul that we open up to Genesis 15. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along, starting in verse 1. It says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? 
For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. See, this is the first recorded conversation between Abram and and God. Up to this point, God has spoken to Abram multiple times. But every single time that God speaks to Abram, Abram just responds in silence by obediently following what God has called him to do. And what we see here in this passage is really just like a discussion between two close friends. Abram is just being real with God. He shares the doubts that he is experiencing. He shares the concerns that he has about God and his promise. He says, God, this is what I'm feeling. And God responds graciously. God responds patiently. And God walks with him. And talks through all of these different things. And as he's doing that, Abram expresses a trust in God. Verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord. Abram trusted God. We're going to get to the significance of that verse shortly. But it is the bedrock for the relationship between Abram and God. Let's continue in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? See, Abram responds to God's promise of land with a simple question. He says, God, how? How will you provide what you have promised to me? I trust that you will deliver on your promises, but I also want to know how you're going to deliver on those promises. As we journey forth in this passage, we see that God responds and answers Abram's question in really two ways. The first is he asks Abram to prepare animals for a ceremony. Let's take a look, picking up in verse 9. It says this, He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This might seem like a very odd way to answer a question of how. God, how will you provide for me? How, how will you provide me with this land that you have promised? Go cut some animals in half. Seems like a very unusual way to answer this question. We're going to look at the significance of this ceremony later. But notice here, God oftentimes answers our questions in very unique ways. God oftentimes answers our questions in ways that we may not expect. Same thing happens for Job. For the first 37 chapters of Job, Job over and over is demanding an answer from God. He's demanding an answer why he is suffering, why so much hardship has befallen him. He's debating with his friends, and over and over he says that he deserves an answer from God. It goes on for 37 chapters. And then in Job 38, God speaks. God does provide an answer 
to Job, but it's not at all the answer that Job is expecting. And then for several chapters, God goes on a blistering question spree, asking him question after question after question, making clear the point that he is God and Job is not. And because God is God and Job is not, his ways are so much higher than Job's ways. God asks Job, have you molded the stars by hand? Have you hung each star in place? Have you formed the mountains? Have you created the oceans? Have you created every single living thing? God answers Job, but the answer is not at all what Job is expecting. As we'll see here, God is answering Abram. He's answering Abram's question of how, but he's not at all answering it in the way that Abram would expect. That's the first way that God answers this question. Second, he actually kind of does answer it in a more appropriate way, starting in verse 12. It says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you should go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. See, what God does here is he's answering, uh, answering Abram's question of how. He, he begins to pull back the curtains to the future. And begin to show Abram how his offspring will one day possess the land. It's a little bit of a glimpse of how. It's maybe not the most exciting thing for Abram to see, because after all, he sees that his offspring will one day be slaves. Not just for a short period of time, but they will be enslaved for hundreds of years. But after that, God will bring judgment upon the land that holds them captive, and they will come forth a great nation and will one day possess the land. God has answered Abram's question of how. But then the chapter ends with another fascinating description of another fascinating vision. It says this in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Another very interesting vision happening here. And it seems almost like it's straight out of a science fiction novel. And we're going to see the, the significance of this a, a little bit later. But notice that this verse and, and these verses, this story, really connects back to verses 9 through 11. The vision of these animals. Because after all, the text says that this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch pass through these animals. What's going on here? Well, first we have to understand what it means to believe God. After all, that's what this passage is about. It's about believing God. So let's take a look at what belief really means and see what belief is described as in this passage. So a couple things. First, belief trusts God. Belief trusts God. We've already mentioned this. The believing God is trusting God. But notice again, verse 
6 of chapter 15. It says this, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's the key verse in this passage. It's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. One of the times it's quoted in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is looking back at Abram's life and he's saying, you know what, let's talk about how Abram was able to be saved by God. How did God save Abram? How did he work in Abram's life? And he says this, starting in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here in this passage, Paul is pointing out that Abram and his belief in God was a radical, confident trust in God. First and foremost, that's what it's all about. He trusts God. And he trusts God's promises to him. When we talk about believing God in our culture today, there are many different things that it can mean. For many people, believing God uh, oftentimes just means simply that they believe in God. It doesn't affect them. It doesn't transform the way that they live. Believing that God exists in some form is basically the same thing as believing that there is a nation on the other side of the world called Kazakhstan. Or believing that there is a professional football team in Minneapolis called the Minnesota Vikings. It's something that doesn't really change the way you live. Well, for some people, the Vikings might change the way you live. Uh, not in a good way. Um, it's something that change, it doesn't really change the way that you live. It's just a mental assertion. You're intellectually uh, uh, saying, yes, I believe that that is something that exists. And for many people, that's where they stop. Believing in God is the same thing as believing God for those people. For others, they take a step further than that. When they say that they believe God, they say, you know what, I acknowledge that there is a God. I acknowledge that there is probably some sort of moral principle, moral standard that this God gives us as a general guideline for us to live. And that's really where they stop. It's a good idea to follow this plan In the same way, that's a good idea for you to not speed. It's a good idea for you to eat healthy. But for these people, nothing is really riding on that belief. It's mental assent, again, plus a half-hearted attempt at following God, at least when it's convenient. That's what it means for many people in our culture to believe God. But that's not what the Bible is referring to. When the Bible talks about believing God, it's referring to a deep-rooted trust. It's referring to the same type of trust that you would place in a person because they are reliable. Because you find them capable of coming through for you. Because the things that they say are truth. In fact, in the Bible, the word for believe and the word for trust are actually the same word. It's because they're so intricately linked together. Belief is trust. That's the first thing this passage tells us. Second thing, it tells us that, you know what? Belief is okay with doubt. Belief is okay with doubt. Notice as you look at these first few verses, it can be kind of 
confusing and and somewhat surprising here. In verses 1 through 5, all Abram does is question God. All Abram does is he brings his doubts before God. He brings his concerns before God. After five verses of that, of this dialogue, this interchange between God and Abram, where Abram is just expressing his struggles with God, you get to verse 6 and God says, you know what? He trusts me. He trusts me. He believes me. I'm not going to condemn him. Instead, I'm going to look upon him and I'm going to count his trust in me as righteousness. Doubt is a part of Abram's belief. I might sound backwards to us because we have an unhealthy understanding of doubt in church today in the United States. We think of it as something that is taboo, that we can't admit that we might struggle with our doubts because then we'll be looked down upon. But Abram struggled with doubt. He struggles with doubt, and he asks God questions. That's what his doubt looks like. In fact, the fact that he is asking God these questions shows that he believes that God is able to answer them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have, answer, he wouldn't have asked God those questions either. Anyway, asking questions shows his belief in God. Shows his trust in God. For those of you who have children, think back to when they were young. When they were three or four, on average, how many questions per day did they ask? The questions that they asked showed that you, they had a belief that you would be able to answer those questions. They trusted that you would be able to answer those questions. The question, can I have a snack, shows that they believe that you could provide them with apple slices or goldfish. The question, why is the sky blue, shows that they believe that you could answer that question even though you couldn't. It is a sign of belief. That's what it means to have a faith like a child, to bring our questions before God, to bring our doubts to God, to bring our concerns to God. Of course, there is a right way to do this and there is a wrong way to do this. One author puts it this way. Questions indicate belief only if you actually want an answer. Someone who asks without, belie- without wanting to learn is not truly asking, but is challenging. Challenging is not believing, but it is undermining. A researcher asks questions to learn the facts, find patterns, and create a hypothesis or a theory. She wants to find the truth. In cross-examination, a, pers- a prosecutor asks questions in order to reveal a lie. He is challenging, not really asking. The main difference is whether the questioner has an answer in mind already or desires to hear what they want to be offered. Researchers might have theories, but their questions are to to test those theories by finding out their real answers. Prosecutors have answers that they want to hear. An unexpected answer is not acceptable. They know what they want and need to hear, and their questions are designed to lead to those responses. All of us, I'm going to just say, all of us probably struggle with doubt. And God is okay with that as long as we don't approach him with questions like a prosecutor. Instead, we approach him with those questions like a researcher, asking God, trusting that God knows what's best, even when we don't know what that is. Belief is okay with doubt. That's our third thing. Next thing, belief fuels spiritual growth. Our belief fuels our spiritual growth. I mentioned that Genesis 
15 verse 6 is, is found throughout the New Testament. Another passage that refers to Genesis 15 6 is in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, we see that Paul is addressing a problem in the church in Galatia. That after they had become Christians through belief, through trust in God, now they were looking to their own works, to their own effort as a way for them to grow. And Paul responds like this in Galatians, uh, uh, excuse me, um, Paul responds by saying, Have you started and will not finish now what you have started by belief? By trust in God. Our belief in God, our trust in God is a place for our continued spiritual growth. In fact, it's essential for our continued spiritual growth. Trusting in God. Next thing, belief is strengthened by what God has already done. When we look at what God has already done, our belief in God will be strengthened. Take a look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. As Abram is struggling with his doubts, struggling with his questions, and, and wondering how he can continue to believe God, God points to the past. God points to what he has already done for Abram. And he reminds Abram of what he has done. I think God encourages us to do the same. God encourages us to look to the past. To remember what he has done for us. And from that place to have our faith, our belief, our trust strengthened in God. Next we see that belief is transformative. Belief is transformative. I mentioned uh, another New Testament passage. is Galatians 3. Another one is, is James chapter 2. In James chapter 2... The, the author of James looks back to Galatians 15 and he looks at the belief, this trust that is found in Abram. And he says, what is it about this belief? What is it about this trust that is so radical? He presents us with two different types of belief. The beginning of this passage, he tells us that there is a belief like that of the demons. It's just a mental ascent, an intellectual recognition of God, and honestly, a pretty good one of that at that. But it's a belief that does nothing for us. So that's the one side of belief. And then he says, well, what is Abram's belief like? What can we learn from how Abram believes? He says, you know what? Abram's belief doesn't just leave him where he's at, where he's at but Abram's belief transforms him. Abram's belief transforms him to live more like God, to follow God obediently. In the same way, our belief, this radical trust in God must also be transformative. doesn't mean that our belief is going to be transformative overnight. It's going to be a long process, a painful process to continue to grow in our trust in God. But our belief must be transformative. It must bear fruit. And that leads us to our final thing that this passage tells us about belief. And that is this, that belief leads to righteousness. Belief leads to righteousness. That's what Genesis chapter 15 is referring to. That's what the rest of the New Testament is referring to. That faith in God, 
trust in God leads us to a right status before God. That leads us to our second question. So we, first we're going to answer the question, what is belief? Second question that this passage asks is, what is righteousness? So let's start with a definition. What is righteousness? We use this word a lot in the church, but what actually does it mean? Well, righteousness, a good way of remembering is just simply a right relationship. Righteousness is a right relationship. It means to live in line with God's plan for our lives, live in line with God's will, honoring God with our lives, thinking of others with our lives. It plays out in many different ways. It plays out in our moral lives. It reminds us that God is the king of our lives. It reminds us that we should not be selfish, but should think of others. It means that we are obedient at all times. Righteousness is right relationship. And because righteousness is a right relationship, it means that it is essential for our relationship. It is something that all of us lack. We can all look back at our lives and say, you know what, I haven't been completely righteous with my life. Yeah, I might have done a righteous deed here or there and might have done a lot of righteous deeds with my lives or with my life, but I have not been completely and utterly righteous. I've not been completely and utterly living in a way that is acceptable in God's sight. That's where Genesis 15 is good news. Because at the same time that it reminds us that righteousness is a right relationship, it also reminds us that righteousness is a gift that comes through faith. Righteousness is a gift that comes through faith. As we trust God, as we believe God, God looks at us and he gives us the gift of righteousness. Theologians refer to this as, as something called imputed righteousness. It's not something that we create in ourselves. It's not something that we earn, but it's something that God bestows upon us, that God gives to us. That's what happens when we have a belief in God, a radical trust in God that transforms us. God declares us righteous even when we are not. Romans 4, we mentioned it earlier. In Romans chapter 4, it also says this. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice what this passage is saying here in Genesis chapter 15. It's not saying that Abram believed God and God therefore saw that it was righteousness. If that was the case, then our faith would be a way that we could work toward gaining righteousness. No, it says Abram believed God and Abram and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's not as if Abram was living in such a way that he was trusting God and then all of a sudden he was holy enough to be counted righteous in God's eyes. It was a complete, utter gift of faith. Because Abram trusted God, God decided him to, to give him this gift. It was completely a gift to him. Righteousness is a gift that comes through faith. Next, 
This ties into another point. Righteousness covers over our wrongdoings. If you look at Romans chapter 4, Paul continues talking about, about Abram, and then all of a sudden he switches gears, and he starts talking about David, and he says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. When he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Why does Abram, why, why is, is David mentioned here when we're talking about Abram? Well, if you think about David and you say, you know what is David most known for? People would say, well, David's most known for being a man after God's own heart. David is most known for his battle against Goliath. And David is also most known for his sin with Bathsheba. David, without a doubt, is the most notable forgiven sinner in the Old Testament. And what Paul is referring to in Romans and what he's reminding us and what we see throughout Abram's life is that this righteousness that comes through faith, that comes through a trust in God, covers over our sin. Abram was not perfect. Remember, he was a moon worshiper, but he trusted God. And from that place of trust in God, God covered over his sin. And he covers over ours as well, if we trust in him. You might be saying, well, how, do, how does all this tie together? That's our, our final point about righteousness here. Righteousness is only found at the cross. Righteousness is only found at the cross. If you go back to Abram, You see that Abram has promised great things in this passage, but none of them have come true yet. And he asked God, how? And God responds simply by saying, cut some animals in half. What's going on here? In ancient times, it was a fairly common ritual. Whenever there was an agreement between two parties to perform this ritual, you would take some animals and you would cut them in half. And you place one half of the animal on one side and the other half of the animal on the other side. And, and this is going to be gory, but the blood of the animals would run down in between the two. And there would be a stream of blood in between these animals. From that point, the two parties would walk through the blood. It was a way of saying, you know what, I agree to this commitment, to this covenant. And if I don't keep up my end of the deal, let me be like these animals. Very common procedure. So notice what happens here. Abram begins the process. He cuts the animals in half. It's a sign of the agreement between him and God. But then what happens? Abram doesn't walk through the path. Who does? God does. Abram doesn't walk through the middle of the path. God does. That's what's being described here in verses 17 through 17 and 18 when it says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What God is doing at this situation, at this moment, he's saying, you know what, Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you. 
You want to know how I'm going to provide this land for you? You know how I want to, I'm going to provide your offspring for you? I am going to make a covenant with you. I am going to promise to do this for you. And if I ever don't do this for you, if I ever fail to keep up my end of the bargain, I'm going to be like these animals. I'm calling down a curse upon myself, Abram, to ensure that I will keep my covenant with you. But not even that. Abram, you're not going to walk through this. And that means if you ever fail to keep up your end of the deal, if you ever fail to keep the covenant with me, then I will be the one who will bear the curse of this covenant. And Abram failed to keep up his end of the covenant. You failed to keep up your end of the deal. Your children have failed to keep up their end of the deal. Your spouses failed to keep up their end of the deal. God knows I've, for, I've failed to live up to my end of the deal. And this curse that God calls down upon himself is ultimately borne by his son on the cross. That's why Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed be everyone who is hanged on a tree. This righteousness of Abraham, our own righteousness, is only found at the cross. It's only found by looking to the cross. It's only because of the cross that we are able to stand in the presence of God. And so ask yourself as we close, am I trusting God? Am I believing God? Am I looking to the cross? Am I trusting in what God has done for me? Or am I trying to save myself through my own actions and works and deeds? Do I believe God? Do I trust God? Genesis 15 is clear. The rest of the Bible is clear. Our own righteousness isn't good enough. Our own ability to save ourselves will fail us. It's also clear that believing in God is not good enough. If it's not trusting God. It might be tough to hear. It might be offensive to hear, but it is true. We are called to believe God. Trust in God and cling to the righteousness that has been given to us through his son. Do you believe God? If you answer yes to that question, another question. Is it producing fruit? Is it transforming your life? Is your belief transformational or is it just simple belief like the demons? Are you growing to be more and more like Jesus as time goes on? Or are you just someone who has said a prayer that hasn't produced any fruit because you aren't trusting in God? Friends, transformative belief is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. One author says this, Belief, even in relationship with God, is not black and white. We do not arrive at any place of satisfaction or finality. It's not like building a house where one day you stand back, dust off your hands, and think, there, it's finished. Belief is more like getting fit. When you look around, it's clear that some people are fit and others aren't. Many people, though, are sort of maybe a bit fit, but really you can't tell. 
They may be getting fit, but don't quite look like it yet. They may be used to be fit, but now are getting lazy or got jobs interfered with their exercise routines. They're on their way down. No matter what, though, nobody gets fit by accident. And nobody stays that way without effort. Belief is like that. It does not just happen. It takes discipline and effort. Sometimes it is difficult. And sometimes we make massive progress. And sometimes we hit a wall. If you have placed your trust in Christ, but you still struggle with doubt, Abram is good news for you. Abram is good news for you because God has counted you righteous in his eyes. And he's okay with your struggles. He's okay with your questions because belief takes work. It's a process that continues to remind us that we need God even to overcome our doubts, even to believe and trust God. So friends, trust God for your salvation. Trust God for provision. Trust God to continue to make you more like him. Believing God trusts God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the righteousness that is offered to us on the cross. We thank you that simply trusting in you brings us into right relationship with you. God, we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you for the love that he has shown us. And God, we pray that you would help us to believe without doubt. But even when we do doubt, God, I pray that we would ask you questions in a way that is honoring to you. That we would trust you, whether you answer or you don't. That we would look to Abram and we would seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.